Have any of you heard of the Reformation? Some kind of some people call it the modern Reformation, uh, the beginning of modernity in many respects are associated with that. Also, it's called the Protestant Reformation. But, but this year, we celebrate on October 31st, the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And it's actually becoming quite a big deal globally. Um, Bruce Gordon, who is a historian, has acknowledged that it's somewhat populist and can even take on the spirit of of a kind of a carnival. He, he says there are so many events planned to mark the Protestant Reformation's 500-year anniversary that sometimes it's hard to keep track. Fresh conversations have been sparked in churches, the press, and seminar rooms. Wittenberg and other Reformation sites in Germany have been beautifully restored, even Disney-fied. So there is a big hoopla going on out there. Perhaps we're not engaged with that ourselves, but but we will find ourselves, if you go to bookstores and things like that, there'll be all kinds of... Uh, an avalanche of publishing that's already going on, publishing regarding Luther or John Calvin and other types of, of great, quote, heroes of the Reformation. And, and of course, there's going to be the embellishments and the myths and the demythologizing of the myths. And, of course, one of those, ironically, um, is perhaps the myth of the Martin Luther uh, on October the 31st, which is the date why we celebrate the 500-year anniversary on October 31st. Well, it's it harkens back to October 31st, uh, 1517, when Martin Luther supposedly nailed his famous 95 theses on the Wittenberg door in Germany. Now, uh, most historians think that probably that didn't happen, but, but it's a great story. <laughs> it's the story of, we'd love to celebrate, of a great rebel who, who, who bucks the establishment and, and who's discovered a new way, and, and certainly is worthy of a movie at least. But for those of us, even in this room, uh, if we're here because of a, of a more internal and, and spiritual hunger and thirst, uh, and perhaps those, especially in a church like this, we do call ourselves uh, Presbyterian, which most people who come here have not come to a Presbyterian church until they came here, so if that's you, you're probably not alone. But, but uh, we certainly see our heritage, our legacy, as coming from the legacy of of the Reformation in many respects. So for those of us, I think this big hoopla begs a few questions. And the question that, that I've been pondering is this. In our present context of the demise in Western Christianity, let's just admit it, Christianity, and especially any kind of organized Christianity, is not in. Um, and in the demise of Western Christianity, as historians would look at it, as sociologists would look at it, as religious uh, scholars would look at it, Pretty much any metric that you use, we would concede that Western Christianity is in demise. And so in the context of that, is there anything we can learn from the 16th century that would assist us in the revitalization of Christianity that's so sorely needed today? Because they had a similar kind of demise happening in their day. What convictions might need to be revisited or what practices, even approach to doing Christianity um, should we be thinking more deeply about, both personally and corporately? Now, I've been reflecting on this, anticipating this fall um, and this big 500-year anniversary that's going on globally and how we as a church might participate a little bit in that. And so I've been reflecting on these questions, and I came to the conclusion that I can think of no better method of discernment than to revisit the five solas. Solo meaning Latin, alone or only. The five solas collectively served as the foundational principles of the Protestant Reformation. 
Here they are, just so you know what they are. It's sola scriptura, or scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. Now, to be sure, the vital word in all of this is alone. The consistent, the consistent theme that comes out over and over again in the Reformation is that it's not that there wasn't a Christendom that affirmed those five words. It's that those five words had been diluted, had been compromised, it was believed, had been added onto in such a manner that those words had become practically meaningless. Things that you'd put on a shelf, maybe, and, or in some kind of dusty confession that's on the, uh, that is used ceremonially, perhaps, in a church, but, but doesn't describe the spirituality and the life of, of the people. Now, it's true, and I should tell you, to be honest with you, all five together were never cataloged uh, by the reformers of the 16th century. Um, it wasn't until, in fact, the 20th century where they were published together in its collective entirety, representing uh, the kind of reformational focus. But all the solace, every one of them will show up by, I think every reformer in various writings by the Protestant reformers again and again and again. If not cataloged altogether, you find them constantly coming through their writings, their teachings, their preachings. And so today, all that to say, we're going to begin... Uh, an intermittent series. I'll be preaching this intermittently with the other pastor here, uh, Craig, of course. And intermittently, you're going to be hearing a series, at least for me, on the five solas. And today, we're going to begin with sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, the first thing I want to tell you, though, and this is important, is that this idea of scripture alone, it certainly involves a conviction about scripture. And there are whole sets of beliefs about scripture that would inform this this idea, this conviction that Scripture alone, or Scripture, is our only rule of faith and practice. It's the only, for a Christian, the rediscovery that only the Scripture should bind our conscience. Not human tradition, customs, ceremonies, not private revelations of other people who have a word of God for us. Only the Scripture. It's a conviction about what Scripture is as the word of God and therefore its role in our life. But I must say that while that is a true confession of sola scriptura, sola scriptura is more than a confession. It's more than this kind of a conviction. It's it's the way you do Christianity. And that's particularly what shows up over and over again uh, through history. And the second thing I'd want to tell you about sola scriptura, just by way of getting you into the sense of what it is, is is while it will show up in the Reformation in great earnest, as you'll see, um, it is not a new idea. In fact, it can be shown quite persuasively that throughout redemptive his, uh, church history, every time there was a revitalization of the church, every time there was this reformational movement that took place, this doctrine, sola scriptura, was always at the forefront. It was the very core that usually precipitated whatever was to follow by way of revival and reformation. Just to illustrate my point, we can go all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd century. We're taken back to a conviction that in church history emerged in the early 3rd century, uh, which was a time when there was perhaps a controversy most notorious of all controversies in church history. 
which was the Arian controversy. Though Arius, Arius was arguably the most notorious of all heretics, you could say. Now, Arius's heretical views were soundly condemned by the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Views against the Trinity. The controversy, though, he sparked, raged for another 50 years throughout the Roman Empire. And during those tumultuous decades, the defenders of Trinitarian orthodoxy, what we call God, three persons, these distinct three persons, one nature, God, distinct but never separate, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, that that during these tumultuous years, that was not popular. That was not the establishment position. By established, I mean Christendom of the 2nd and 3rd century. In fact, Christendom, establishment, that part of Christianity that that enjoyed power and and influence culturally, were certainly the more, uh, uh, they, they were not Trinitarian, if you will. They were more Arian. And so during those tumultuous decades, the defenders of the Trinity and Orthodoxy often found themselves outnumbered and out of favor with the imperial court, the court that was backed by the church. Yet, they would refuse to compromise. Among them, most famously, stood Athanasius of Alexandria, exiled on five different occasions for his unwavering commitment to this truth, Sola Scriptura. He was joined by the Cappadocian fathers. Maybe you've heard some of these names. Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nensensis, Gregory of Nyssa. And what all of these folks shared in common was Sola Scriptura. This unwavering conviction that the Scripture of the Old and New Testament was their only rule of faith and practice, and it undergirded their rediscovery of a gospel and every one of those other solas that we talked about earlier. Uh, they defended this truth by appealing to Scripture, you see. Gregory of Nyssa just gives one illustration, the point explicit that he made in a letter to Eusebius. You see, the Iranians had claimed that, that Arians claimed that their tradition or, quote, custom, that is, the authority of the church of the day, did not allow for the Trinitarian possibility or position. Here's how Gregory responded in 202 A.D. We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and the rule of sound doctrine. And I should stop there because what is custom? See, custom can be in many ways and forms. In a Christendom context where every, uh, a particularly a pre-modern Christendom context where, where every nation state had a deity, that deity which enjoyed state backing became the deity and the worldview and the doctrine that was most popular, that was most essential for one's power, prestige, privilege, etc. And so in this day, you know, it was espoused by custom. But see, today it's different. In a postmodern or in a modern and postmodern context like America, uh, custom tradition is going to be more populist. Uh, Nathan Hatch, a great uh, historian of American religious history, wrote a book called The Democratization of American Christianity. What he says about America, the place we live, is that, that the, new, the new pope is democracy. It's popular opinion. It's, it's, what, it's numbers, if you will. So you see, it can come in different forms, and you begin to realize, wow, we have something in common with them. Because we are increasingly living in a context where Christianity, at least the orthodoxy of Christianity, is viewed as either irrelevant or just plain wrong or disinteresting because it doesn't enjoy now the power, privilege, and prestige of our culture. 
the way it might have once had here in New England some 300 or 400 years ago. And so he says this, We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and the rule of sound doctrine, for if custom is the is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom. And if they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire, and the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. In other words, sola scriptura. Well, I won't take you through, as some of you know me, when I do sermons, I write books because I get into it, and I don't give you a lot of it. But, but just so you know, I'm sitting here on my pad, and, and I could quote similar quotes from people like Arrhenius of Leons in 202 A.D., of Tertullian of Cartridge in 170 A.D., of Hippolytus in 235, Eusebius of Caesarea to around 270, Athanasius of Alexandria around 300, on it goes, Cyril of Jerusalem, John of Christendom, Augustine of Hippo, every one of these would espouse this idea that drove a great movement that they were part of that began with Sola Scriptura. Well, you're waiting for me to turn the corner. Well, here it is. As we approach then the Reformation, the Reformation that took place in the 1500s, well, would you believe that this, this sort of idea began to develop 200 years in the 1300s before the Reformation. It was described as the shining light that led to the Reformation under the ministry of a guy named John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was born in 1325 in Richmond in Yorkshire and lived some 200 years before John Calvin or Martin Luther. 200 years. And he lived in a context where there was also this great demise of Christianity in the culture. Concerning the state of the church in England in that time, it is, it's pretty difficult for us to even comprehend how dark it really was. But the church departed from the simplicity of doctrine and worship which had characterized the apostolic and more primitive age. About that time, the, the preface uh, of, to the Book of Common Prayer, which was a later document uh, out of the Reformation of England, it said this about those days. It's in the Common Book of Prayer, quote, the multitude of ceremonies was so great and many of them so dark that they did more to confound and darken than to declare and set forth Christ and his benefits unto salvation by grace through faith alone. Did you hear that? By grace alone, faith alone, and why? You see, the spiritual aspect of religion had become largely obscured as medieval Christianity had trended to become almost exclusively ceremonial, or sacerdotal is a big word for that. By ceremonial, I mean where, where it became a kind of magic show that to do the ceremonies. And so the church and the clergy had virtually ceased from the exercise of the true ministry of the word. I mean, this doctrines like transubstantiation, the corrupt penitential system, indulgences, pilgrimages, invocations of saints, the, all these sorts of things... The, the corruptions of then the monastic life and how it become corrupt with worldliness, ironically. Um, but mostly the gross superstition that was associated with ceremonialism. Just kind of doing the ceremonies like it's magic. Well, all of this began to develop, and it was due in large measure to the fact that there was absolutely almost entire ignorance about uh, and, and neglect of the teachings of the Bible. 
enter then John Wycliffe. He, like Martin Luther 200 years, had a great conviction of con- a, 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 well, it was a crisis of conscience. He, he felt unassured. He felt unqualified to be a minister. He was a pastor. And he, he was going through a real crisis. And, he, and lo and behold, he turned to the Word. He went back to the sources. And he discovered Sola Scriptura. He says, Holy Scripture is the preeminent authority. There it is, sola. Preeminent authority for every Christian, the rule of faith and of all human perfection. You hear that rule of faith? That language will show up over and over in the creeds of, of Reformation. The witness of the ministry of John Wycliffe and his conviction that the Bible then should be the sole authority of life. He says it this way, For as much as the Bible contains Christ, that is all that is necessary for salvation. It is necessary for all people, not for priests alone. It alone is the supreme law that is to rule church, state, and Christian life without human traditions or statutes. Hear it? Sola Scriptura. Such conditions for the Scripture led to a serious practice about how to interpret it. For those of us who study the interpretation of the Bible, it's amazing when you read his five practices for interpreting Scripture, how those showed up again in the Reformation 200 years ago, later, and how even to this day they're codified in our confession of faith. Things like obtain a reliable text, as in make sure you're working with the true canon. Understand the logic of the scripture, that is, understand scripture as it's revealed from redemptive age to redemptive age, what's called a redemptive historical view of scripture. Compare the parts of scripture with another part, that is, to interpret scripture with scripture. You see how serious he was taking scripture. Maintain an attitude of humble seeking. Approach the scripture as our authority, not as we judging it. And then he goes, receive the instruction of the Spirit humbly. These are amazing principles, but it expresses what I've been saying already, that that sola scriptura is more than a conviction about what Scripture is, our only rule of faith and practice, but it actually is a way of doing Christianity. It's a way of reading the Bible. It's a big thing here. He says this, though. More than that, and if you've heard of John Wycliffe, this is what he's most famous for. He believes so important was the Scripture that it that the laity, the lay people, should have it in their own tongue. He said this, It is certain that the truth of the Christian faith becomes more evident the more the faith is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but in the common tongue. And as the faith of the church is contained in the Scriptures, the more these are known in the true sense, the better, he says. And so it is John Wycliffe that, was the, that we owe the first translation of the Bible that was, he only had access to the Latin Bible. But he was the first to translate it into English in 1384, or Englishman. But his sola scriptura led also to a new kind of ministry born out of a new scripture, uh, a new way of life informed by scripture, of the gospel of grace by faith alone. He sounds almost identical to John Hus, who a hundred years later, and then Martin Luther, two hundred years later, where they can say something like this when they rediscovered the scripture. Where Wycliffe said, when I studied the scripture, I discovered that the gospel alone, there's that alone word, is sufficient to rule the lives of Christians everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conduct added nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the sufficiency of scripture. And then he says this. Again, you'd almost be reading the words of Martin Luther. Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness 
received by faith alone, quote, unquote. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God, and he goes on to describe that, but it's all by grace alone through faith alone. And there's one more thing that came out of this Sola Scriptura for John Wycliffe. Not only did he rediscover the amazing grace of the gospel which transformed his life and ministry, he also found courage. He said this, now that he had had this source from God directly and he believed it and experienced it in his power, he says, I am now ready to defend my convictions even unto death. I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctrines. Well, as it happens, John Wycliffe, though he would be persecuted, his books would be burned, he would never be put to death. But in that era, almost everyone that followed after him did. Names like Bilney, Tyndale, Frith, Latimer, these are all people and others like them that had come out of the darkness when they discovered Sola Scriptura and found the the gospel. And except for John Wycliffe, every name I just named was put to death for their convictions. It was that unpopular. You see, so goes Sola Scriptura, so goes the gospel, so goes the power that drove these major reformational movements. But that all drives me to what I'm here to do, and I know that was an elaborate introduction but I wanted to give you the sense of gravity of this. But very briefly, what I want to do then is show you that this idea, Sola Scriptura, it's not just a church history thing. This is the very idea that drove the strategy and the power of the gospel that Paul gave through Acts. You see the whole book of Acts driven by this amazingly common sort of of, uh, trajectory. High view of Scripture, leading to a high view of the gospel, leading to great, amazing grace experience and transformational grace, leading to incredible courage, leading to a world turned upside down. It's the pattern of Acts. And I want to show it to you real briefly now. So you just heard read Acts 17. What did you hear? Well, let me just categorize it for you very briefly. It's pretty simple, actually. You heard you heard what an amazing... There was, there was Paul who was planting churches, as he does throughout Acts, as Peter and Paul and all. It's the story of planting churches in the, in the, uh, upon the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone. And in this planting strategy, you heard both in Thessalonica, the first part of chapter 17, and in Berea, the second part of 17, you heard a common strategy, stated quite simply, quite plainly, and with not a lot of added verbiage, intending that you might see it. So, for instance, in telling the story of Paul's church planning journey in Thessalonica and Berea, Luke then, in brief, shows this kind of twofold strategy. The first was, and it was common, you see it all through Acts, but this is one I'll point out from the text we had here. It's interesting. Have you ever noticed how Paul always keeps saying about his ministry to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles? Have you ever noticed that? And you kind of scratch your head and go, what's the deal there with that? Well, if you read about that in Romans, for instance, and that's what you see here. In verse 1, Thessalonica, they came to Thessalonica where they were synagogue, where they first went to a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, and as was his custom. That's Luke telling you this was strategy for him. That's what he would do. He would go into a, a Jewish synagogue first. Same thing in Berea, verse 10. The very night that the believers in St. Paul and Silas off to Berea, and where they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue first. And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why, why that strategy? 
this Jew first, then the Greeks kind of strategy. A pattern that you see over and over in Acts, by the way, and I won't show it to you at this point. But what's interesting is Paul explains that strategy later in the book of Romans. He says, who are the Jews? What makes them so special? Well, according to Paul, it's because they had the word of God. They had the promises. They had the Torah. I mean, it was the most sacred possession of the Jewish synagogue is access to the Torah, which was, of course, the Old Testament. And so he would go there first precisely because he would want to ground the gospel in that city on what? The defense of it, not as a new religion, but is in continuity with the religion already revealed by God through great acts of redemption in history, which were given to us by these authorized, canonical, if you will, rules of Scripture called the Old Testament. And so he went into these Jewish synagogues precisely because it was his strategy, secondly, and you see it right here, to have a strategy of sola scriptura, that everything was to begin with sola scriptura. That is, that the true faith must be reasoned as from the context of Scripture as this only rule of faith and practice. Notice then more carefully what he does in Thessalonica in chapter 17. It says, when they came, it says, I'm picking up in verse 2, and when Paul went in to the, to the Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he, and here's a very important word, your translation might have it, there's many different ways. It could have just said he, he spoke, Formally spoke, he, but then if other translations will say, like the new NRSV say, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He spoke to them, he public oration to them, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3 continues, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying this Jesus whom you proclaim to you is the Messiah the Old Covenant anticipated Messiah, the Christ. Now, this word, I want to go back to it because it's going to really drive, I think, something that was discovered in the Reformation, but we need to, that gets to the question, what do we need to rediscover today? And that's this little word that is, that is again, interpreted, he reasoned with them, or, or whatever your word might be, formally addressed them, preached to them. It's interesting because everywhere that it's used, it's always a public event, and it's a relatively formal event. In other words, he's talking about what we call today the sermon. Now, I find this, particularly as a guy that preaches, very instructive, because now I'm at a text that's going to tell me, well, what is a sermon? Because today there's a lot of confusion about that, as there was in all demise of Christendom eras. You see, some would see a sermon as, well, uh, it's where you learn the facts. If you're familiar with the classical sort of designations of learning, or if you're familiar with this, trivium, grammar, rhetoric. Well, some would come to a sermon and think, well, it's where I'm going to learn facts. You know, facts like the things you must learn to pass your little church, you know, test. You know, fact is, you know, so we start with that as a young child. We say to our children in this church, we have a little catechism, a training device. What is God? Fact, question. Answer, God is a spirit. Fact. And we have a lot of questions like that, believe me. So that's, a, that's what we call trivium. Interestingly, in the medieval church, facts were being proclaimed. Then you go to grammar. Grammar is when you say, okay, what does it mean, these facts? 
that God is a spirit, you know? Uh, what does it mean that he died on the cross? And so it explains, well, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Meaning, okay? What it strikes me is that very carefully the word that is described here and then further explained doesn't get to the word trivium or grammar. It doesn't get to that kind of an exercise. Very meticulously, here and elsewhere in Acts, when this word is used, it's described and as a rhetorical event. And by rhetorical, I don't mean like political crap on TV. Rhetorical. I mean a defense, a case, an argument. You see, the rhetorical question, or the rhetorical aspect of learning is, is that kind of learning that speaks into my conscience, that speaks to my affections. In other words, it's not just enough to know the fact that I can pass a little exam. It's not enough that I know the meaning of it that I can say, well, I can pass, again, a a little bit of a know what it means in a practical way. All that's important. not diminishing that. But it's the idea of why then should I believe it? It's, you see the difference? It's responding to the cynicism, the skepticism, the affections, the sense of relevancy. It's, it's dealing with these facts as I would then want to give my life to it, to put my life in its, in its truth. It's a very different exercise. And this is incredible because, see, this is what we find in this word. He spoke persuasively, persuading them from the scriptures. And here we have these explaining by what? Explaining it to them? And then he goes on to say, by supporting it with the evidence of scripture. What a definition of a sermon. And what would it involve? What does it experience? What does it look like? Well, here in this context particularly, you see that, that uh, uh, what the reaction was. We're told very carefully in Thessalonica there were two reactions. Some of them were persuaded. There's that word again, persuaded. Not just understood. You see the difference? Under, persuasion's different. You could be sitting here right now and you're just kind of going in your heart. Oh, you're looking very dutiful. You're looking very much like you're into it maybe. You're kind of looking at me. I don't see any of you sleeping yet. That's kind of good. Um, but you could be over here going, yeah, sure. I know, because that's what I did years in the pulpit. I mean, in the pew. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're going through that, right? I know. And, um, and, and, and sermons in Christendom just kind of assume that, because it's all in the culture, that, well, we all believe it. Parents start thinking, well, my job is to raise children who know the facts and understand what they mean. Well, I'm here to tell you that is not sufficient. That's actually what happens in the demise of Christianity. Is that we quit targeting our children's consciences. We quit, we quit bringing sermons day after day, week after week. We quit having the discussions about those sermons that are more than, well, how long did he make it today? God, that was great. He made it for 40 minutes. Or that was really interesting. Or that's what I can now, I knew a new fact. I didn't know that about John Wycliffe. I was tempted not to tell you about that because then you go home and talk about the fact of John Wycliffe, which will deny the whole point of this sermon. You see, what happened here is that some were persuaded. What? It's a faith-forming event, what a sermon is. 
and what Christianity is all about, sola scriptura, forming faith. Think about the questions you have if you're going to put your faith in something. It's very different to know the facts about a car and to be suaded to buy it. And to be suaded to buy it, you're going to have to go kick the tire a little bit, right? You're going to look under the hood a little bit. Well, today it would mean nothing for me to look under the hood, so I'm going to have to go research. I'm going to go to Google, and I'm going to find out about, you know, I'm going to be persuaded to buy it. The demise of Christianity begins when we quit persuading people to buy it because we assume they already have it. We live in an era, maybe two generations since, sermons and Christianity was persuading people. And that's one of the exciting things about this era is we have a chance to do it again. So you see, they were persuaded. Then there were others, of course, that rejected it. More times than not, that's the case. More reject the persuasion of the gospel in their lives, while they may assent to it, than more receive it or are persuaded by it. Jesus warned us about that. The, the path is narrow and crooked. Only few enter in by it. It's kind of accepted. But anyway, we have these rejections. And what's interesting, the reason why they rejected it. You could, it, they formed a mob, they're told, we're told. They got this great false sense of authority from how many people with me are not, or are, are with me. A mob effect, or what we call populism, is this idea that, that if other people believe and agree with me, then I'm in sure ground. I'm in sure footing. And so sure enough, you see this, this very pattern in the Gospels. You see it in the Acts. You see it in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, the church, the true church, is always described as a remnant, as a minority. Is that good for you? Can you accept that? Can you live with that? Think about it. Living in America, where we've been raised to believe that that truth is always a kind of common knowledge, that it's going to be popular, it's going to be a, something that, that you could vote on, and as long as it's 51%, it must be true. That's the spirit that we breathe. Well, that's what they did. They, they created a mob. It was populist, this rejection. They took personal offense. Sound familiar? You're making me feel uncomfortable, Paul. You know, you're challenging my person and my identity, Paul. But specifically, the offense for them was that the issue was lordship. It said they all reacted against, uh, let me read, these men who have turned the world upside down, so there it is, Paul's turning the world upside down with Sola Scriptura, it says, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Oh, oh. Can you believe that Paul was doing that? He was actually bucking the establishment king. He was actually raising the possibility of a rule, an authority that was higher than Caesar. Now, why were the Jews reacted this way? Because the Jews had a nice little relationship to Caesar in this day. See, Jews enjoyed a kind of power that Caesar had given them as long as they affirmed the exclusive authority of a Caesar. And they were all horrified because what was happening? Because this scripture that Paul was preaching was challenging the very things they feared most. And it wasn't God. What they feared most was the loss of power, prestige, and privilege. They feared money. They feared popular approval. They feared the the power of the temporal authorities. 
didn't understand that the ultimate authority and power, the one that holds the balance of their life in their hand, was God. He's the one we got to be afraid of. Now, the good news is, yes, God is really dangerous because he's God. He's a lion, right? But he's also good. He's a lamb. But they were afraid more of all these other things than of God. And so they took offense. And this is what happens here. But notice then the contrast reaction to, this, to the preaching. So there the story goes. They, they persecute Jason who housed Paul, Jason, and all those in solidarity with Paul. They, they helped them get out in secret. And then they're going to Berea, and they had a very different reception. In Berea, it says, and, there, and Paul wants you to know, or Luke, who's writing this, wants you to know that this is the, the, the noble, or this is the, the, the way or the pattern that, that Luke wants us as Christians to know is the right one. Because he says this, now these Jews, when he went to the Berean synagogue, had a very different reaction than Thessalonica. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, i.e., this is the one you're to follow. And what, was, what did they do? It says, one, they received the word with all eagerness. Another translation says, they welcomed it. In the words of our Psalms that we read, they delighted in it. And what does that way of doing Christianity look like? They delighted the word. They weren't over there going, oh, man, make this quick, Paul. They weren't over there going, oh man, don't, don't, don't do this, man. Don't, I'd rather just not know. <laughs> Let me just keep status quo here. They were eager for it. They delighted with it. And it says they were not concerned about how the apostolic teaching threatened their own authority or privilege or status in society, but rather they were concerned to know if it was true or not and whether they should believe it, which means to live by it. And so what did they do? It goes on to explain. The evidence of their delighting and welcoming, eagerly receiving it, was we're going to be told that they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. They examined it carefully. They investigated it. You know, I, I find in my own sense of history in our church, when we first started this church 25 years ago, there was a sense in which we were truly, totally, an enigmatic, sort of just a, we, we just felt very much alone here. There wasn't Trinity. Uh, there was hardly anything downtown. And I just remember that sense of, of hearing a sermon up in Marquand Chapel, Divinity School. And then we would come together, and I mean, we would really examine the sermon. I mean, this, it was, it, you just sense this energy that says, I don't want to go down to Sunday school and learn some more facts. I need to go and ask some questions. And man, did I hear questions. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be really frank with you. And that's not true. I actually think there's something happening in this group right here. And even in our church, and I don't want to put anybody down, but, but just generally, I don't feel that energy quite as much as I used to. I'm concerned about it. But I hear something changing, a Christendom-sounding energy. Give me a new fact. Give me a new trivium. Tell me something practical. But, but there's not this sense of asking, do I want to believe this or not? What do I need to ask to say, I want to believe this? Can I believe this? This is what you hear, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. You see, the end game was forming faith. Creating personal confessions and corporate confessions alike. And we see the evidence of this also in their small day with others who confess. Jason and his family got persecuted. 
that courage shows up again. Do you see what I told you about in Wycliffe? What I told you about in Arrhenius and in the earlier movements? You're seeing a pattern develop. That what I saw in the 3rd century, that what I see in the 13th and 14th century, what we're going to see in the Reformation is a common pattern that fits perfectly the Berea experience. People who rediscover in a crisis what to believe from Scripture. When they find it, they are transformed by the grace of the gospel. And in that transformation, the grace of the gospel, based upon the evidence and the validation of Holy Scripture, they find a courage that transcends all the great perks and privileges of holding to the faith as is common around them. They are now turning the world upside down. This is the passage. Did you notice that this is the passage where that amazing statement is said that these Christians are turning the world upside down? So let me just close it this way. I have said to you the Berean way. Now, I'm on, in summary about the Berean way, we can say that the Berean way certainly is a conviction about the scripture as their only rule of faith and practice such that this strategy of Paul of going to the synagogue, opening up the Torah where the synagogue was found, I mean where the Torah was found in the synagogue, opening it up, reasoning from the Torah, that the Berean way, which he's saying is the noble way, the one that we're to follow, is to, to welcome that process in your life. I've said it before, I would honestly honestly, honestly, rather you lose your Christendom faith. The kind of faith that knows the trivia, that understands the grammar, but if it's just this kind of, I know it, but, it, but and I'm comfortable because other people around me know it, and as more you get involved in this church, perhaps that's going to be one of the unwelcomed, in my heart, unwelcome consequences of being a part of a church is that it becomes easy to believe it without really believing it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray that God will that you'll lose your faith, <laughs> and you'll come to a place of crisis before that happens, so that you can rediscover it as someone who's really discovered it as believable, as livable, and what I am bound by conscience to do. And so, the Berean way are those who welcome the rhetoric of the Christian faith to sit down and reason together about it. And the Berean way certainly has this way of doing Christianity then that's different than the Thessalonica way, which is to kind of adopt doctrines from the traditions that have been given to me as long as they don't shape my power, my prestige, my privilege in life and take away those things that I want temporally. Sir, Sola Scriptura, there are many assumptions that we need to engage about Scripture as to whether we can really believe in the Scripture as our only rule of faith and practice. If I had time, we would need to reason together about divine inspiration. Is the Scripture, the words themselves, really of divine origin that we could trust them as God's mind to us? I concede we need to reason together about that, don't we? That's a big question today. Is it really infallible, all of it? Really? How do I deal with some of these discrepancies that I see in Scripture? Can we get beyond those discrepancies and really believe in the infallibility that it's true? 
We need to reason together about the reliability of the Scripture. Do we have a canon that's the right canon? We hear about the Gnostic Gospels. How do we know those aren't the right canons? Am I making you lose your faith now? Well, good. If it makes us ask these questions. What about clarity? Is the Scripture accessible to all? Perspicuity, we call it. Do we have confidence that we can read the Bible and get a sense for what it means? You're going to need to understand that before you can go to Sola Scriptura. And the sufficiency. Is Scripture really relevant to my life? Really? These are big questions, and all of them are assumptions that Sola Scriptura is grounded on. But like I've said, Sola Scriptura is more than a conviction about what the Scripture is. It's also a way of doing Christianity. It's a practice, a passion, an experience of hungering and thirsting and delighting in the Word of God and entering into conversation and sermons in the Word of God in order to be persuaded that I should believe it. That I hear an argument in a sermon, not just a presentation of facts and the meaning of those facts, but I hear an argument directed to my soul and my conscience. We preachers need to hear this description of a sermon, and we need to bear the burden of that more. A willingness to craft a sermon that speaks into you like that. I'm trying to do that now. I'm trying to concern you and to, and to, to uh, exhort you. Whatever those words are, reconsider, would you, your understanding of Scripture? And is it really that big of a deal? It begs the question, doesn't it? And it begs the question of how is it that we're going to see a revitalization of Christianity here? How am I going to see it in my own life? Well, the answer we've been given today is, well, the first thing. Well, you could start with the fear of the Lord. That you really believe. And what do you need to do to really believe this? That he is the most dangerous, God is the most dangerous being that there is relative to your life. How you are with him is going to make more of a difference between your life being good or bad than any other thing that you're in relationship to. Your school, your work, other people, marriage, children, name it. But do you believe, not only that he's that powerful and and has that kind of authority over your life, but do you also believe that he's good? Do you believe in the cross? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in those teachings that are from God? Those are big questions. But the moment you believe and you have this, quote, fear of the Lord, you'll discover that all other fears get dissolved. And there's one holy passion in your life, to know God. And how would you know him? His mind, the way he thinks. Has he given us something we can read? That's the word of God. How would that change your life? You really believe that. How would it change that? what you do with it on a daily basis, what you expect from a preacher when you hear a sermon. On it goes. It's not only a conviction about Scripture, it's a way we do Christianity. Sola Scriptura. And most importantly, it's something that brings us to a table like this. For the Word, John says, the Word, the eternal mind of God, unchanging and perfect, became flesh, He came into our presence, into our language group. Some people don't realize, but, you know, our New Testament is written in the common tongue of that era. It's a kind of Greek that's the commoner's Greek. It's not the classical highbrow Greek. He came into our flesh. 
And what we discover is that God is dangerous. He's a God of righteous, justifiable anger that we've rejected him, we've offended him, our creator, and yet he's good. The same God who's righteously angry is righteously merciful and gracious. And I would not know that except that the word of God tells me that. So let's come to this table encountering the word fleshed out in Christ's life as we rethink our orientation in Christianity. Let's prepare ourselves for communion.